This morning we come to the end of the story of David's kingdom. Now I immediately need to add, we are not finishing the book of 2 Samuel this morning. After today, we'll still have four chapters left in this book. But those chapters really are like an epilogue to the book. Our passage this morning ends the account of David's rise, fall, and restoration. That's how one writer has described it. In the first ten chapters, we saw David's rise. Then his fall in chapter 11. And the following chapters showed the outworking of that as David's family fell apart. But then chapter 19 showed the beginning of his restoration. Israel chose to bring back their king. And this morning, chapter 20 completes the picture of David's restoration. If you have a Bible, it would be helpful to turn there. In the church Bible, it's page 326, and in the large print, 502. Last week, we left the Israelites having a big argument on a riverbank. The men of Judah from the south of Israel were arguing with the men from the north. The northerners are referred to as the men of Israel, which is slightly confusing for us. But as we pick up in chapter 20, that's what we need to keep in mind. The men of Judah are the southern Israelites. The men of Israel are the northern Israelites. We're rejoining them right in the middle of this argument on the bank of the Jordan River. And we're going to read all of chapter 20. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So, all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. David said to Abishai, Now, Sheba son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's man and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Carathites and Pelethites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand, to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand. 
And Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Makkah and through the entire region of the Bichrites, who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel Beth Makkah. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so that I can speak to him. He went towards her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, Long ago they used to say, Get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are peaceful, the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelathites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Alihud, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was David's priest. This is God's word. And what a mess it lays out for us. What are we to make of this? Where do we start with this? Well, as we've read this book, we've had one main principle to help us. This book is about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of David foreshadows the kingdom of God's ultimate king, Jesus Christ. That's not my idea. That is how the New Testament leads us to understand David's kingdom. What Jesus brings is the fulfillment of what was sketched out in David's kingdom. When artists want to create something, whether it's a painting or a sculpture, first of all, they produce sketches. 
are models. Those sketches are models prepare for the work that's to come. That's a bit like David's kingdom. It's like a preparatory sketch or model of the kingdom of God. And we need to understand it from that perspective. We need to read it with that understanding. And when we do, we begin to see how it applies to us. These events took place in another time in another part of the world. But they help us live today in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. One historian has said, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And that is true in the kingdom of God as much as anywhere else. The passage we just read gives us a series of kingdom concerns. These are truths we must not forget as we live in God's kingdom today. First of all, we're shown that self-centeredness deepens division. We've seen this chapter opens right in the middle of an argument. The northern Israelites are arguing with the southern Israelites. And the argument is really about nothing. Since Absalom's rebellion, David has been based east of the Jordan River in the wilderness. But these men, all of them, have answered the call to bring back their king. Thousands of them have come to escort David across the river and back to Jerusalem. That's why they've gathered. But then some silly quarrel starts about who got there first or who heard about it all first. And both sides are being silly. The end of chapter 19 gave us the gist of the argument. The northerners are saying, you southerners are monopolizing the king. And the southerners shout back at them, the king is closely related to us. Now in reality, David is king of all Israel, north and south. But the men from Judah get all possessive about him, as if they have more of a claim on David than anyone else. Imagine if people who grew up in the church started saying they had more claim on Jesus than people who didn't grow up in church. That would be today's equivalent of this silliness. So the men of Judah have not helped the situation. But then in the middle of this, chapter 20, verse 1 tells us, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, we have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. In other words, Sheba says, come on, northerners. We're not welcome in this kingdom. This is too cliquey. We don't fit in. We're not being made welcome enough. There's nothing here for us. Sheba really is a troublemaker. He makes no effort to diffuse the silly argument. He cranks it up. Instead of challenging the self-centeredness of the man of Judah, Sheba appeals to the self-centeredness of the man of Israel, the northerners. He should have stood up and proclaimed the truth. David is king for all Israel. 
Bathsheba encourages the lie. That he and his fellow northerners don't belong in David's kingdom. Brothers, let's take off. Jesse's son has nothing for us. Can you see how this is a timeless danger? All it needs today is a few people in the church who think they own the church and have a monopoly on Jesus. Then throw in a troublemaker who'll play on that, who'll stir up those who feel left out, and in no time you've got serious division. And it all comes from self-centeredness. The Judahites were self-centered to think David was somehow their king more than anyone else's. And the northerners were self-centered to split the kingdom because of their hurt feelings. What a mess. Let's make sure it never happens to us. If you grew up in the church, thank God for that blessing. But when someone walks in here who knows nothing about church, maybe they sit in your seat, or what you imagine is your seat. Maybe they're noisy in the service. They don't know the unwritten rules about how we behave in church. If that happens, please remember Jesus came to be their king too. The privileges of growing up in church That doesn't make you any more special in Jesus' eyes. It doesn't give you platinum club membership in God's kingdom. And if you have come recently to church and someone happens to offend you, if they're silly or insensitive in some way, don't go off in a huff. Jesus is the king of all who trust in him. Don't divide his church because some of its members have been silly. Instead, for the good of the church, go and talk it through with the person who offended you. Not with aggression, not because you want to win an argument. No, go with concern for them. For the unity of the church. And gently but firmly bring them back to the truth that Jesus came for sinners. And that puts every single one of us in the same boat. Well, that is not what Sheba did. He was a pure troublemaker. And initially, at least, he was a successful troublemaker. In verse 2, All the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And then, before we find out the rest of that storyline, we get a brief diversion as David arrives back in Jerusalem in verse 3. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem... He took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. 
The background to this goes back to David's sin with Bathsheba. When David repented, he was forgiven. But God said the consequences of that sin would still play out. In fact, God said one who was close to David would sleep with David's wives in broad daylight. Then in the aftermath of his sin, as David's family disintegrated and Absalom rebelled, David had to leave Jerusalem. And he left behind ten concubines to take care of the palace. Concubines were like wives, but they didn't have the full status and privileges of wives. And David should never have had them. Right at the beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of the human race, God made his will clear. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. One man, one woman. That's God's will. Of course, people didn't always live that way. They didn't live that way in the nations around Israel. And some Israelites took on the practice of having multiple wives and having concubines. And as we look at that, the way to analyze it is not to say, well, if they did it, it must be okay. No, we need to ask, how did it turn out? And the Bible shows us again and again, it never turned out well. David should not have had more than one wife. He certainly shouldn't have had a harem. But he seemed to think in his early days that's what kings did. So he'd better do it too. In any case, he had these concubines. He left them behind when he fled Jerusalem. And when Absalom arrived, he slept with them publicly. It was a way of giving his father the ultimate insult. Well, now David is back. And commentators believe he has decided now to distance himself from having many wives and concubines, which is a positive thing. But the problem is, he already has them. He can't just turn them out into the street. They're dependent on him. It's likely no one else will have them at this stage. So David arranges to provide for them. That's the sense of them being under guard. They will be protected. No one else is going to treat them the way Absalom treated them. That's positive too. But overall, the outcome is not positive. These ladies are left to a sad existence for the rest of their lives. David is learning that sin makes messes that don't always go away. David has repented of his sexual sin with Bathsheba. He seems to be repenting of having a harem. But there's just no neat and tidy way to put that right. There's no painless way for David to undo his wrongdoing. David's sexual past has left a certain amount of ongoing mess 
Not so much for David himself, but for those around him. This has been a recurring theme in the book since chapter 12. And the application for you and me is fairly simple. Let's never think we can choose to sin, then ask God for forgiveness and everything will be all right again. It can be all right again between us and God, but it might not be all right again between us and other people. Sin makes messes that don't always go away. That is not just true of sexual sin. It's true of all sin. And so if you're contemplating some sin, don't just think about whether there'll be a way back to God afterwards. Think about the mess you might make in other people's lives that mess might never go away. There might be no way to completely clean it up again. Think about that and don't do it. The writer of 2 Samuel left the account of Sheba's rebellion to tell us about these ladies. Their sadness needed to be mentioned. It needed to be recorded for us. But now the writer returns to the Sheba situation. And we find that rebellion can dress up as loyalty. When David encouraged the Israelites to welcome him back as king, he made a move to show his goodwill. We saw it last week. He promoted Amasa to be commander of his whole army. Amasa had been commander of Absalom's army. But David wanted to show he wasn't going to storm back into Israel and start settling old scores. So it was a good idea. But there was a difficulty with it. The difficulty was David's army already had a commander. And not just any commander. Joab is one of the most dangerous men in the whole Bible. He's a man you don't want to cross. Ask Absalom about that. And further back, ask Abner. Neither of those men lived long after Joab took a dislike to them. Joab is deadly. He's also supremely confident. He's always sure what needs to be done. And anyone who disagrees with him clearly doesn't know what they're talking about. So you and I don't need to be Einstein to figure out what Joab thinks of this recent demotion he's just had. This is not going to end well for Amasa. But remember, the pressing problem for David is Sheba. He started a rebellion, and David knows he needs to move fast. He can't allow Sheba time to gather up support in Israel. So he tells Amasa, you have three days to gather the army for me. We can't wait any longer than that. But the text tells us when the three days are up, Amasa 
hasn't come back. That's not a big surprise. David promoted him as a goodwill gesture, not because Amasa was any use at all as a commander. And so David says to Abishai, Joab's brother, you chase after Sheba with the men you've got. It turns out those men include Joab. He's been demoted, but he's still commanding a division of the army. So they set off, and when Amasa finally shows up to join the army, Joab greets him with his right hand. In Israel, the right hand was the weapon hand. So when Joab extends his empty right hand to Amasa, he's showing he comes in peace. In fact, the Hebrew word he uses is shalom, my brother. But as he holds up his right hand, David takes a dagger in his left hand. He grabs Amasa's beard so Amasa can't get away. And it's all over for Amasa. Before he even knows what's going on, his guts are spilling on the ground. And Joab is off up the road after Sheba. And let's remember, Sheba is the enemy. And Sheba stands much less of a chance against Joab than he would have against Amasa. So, this is good, right? It's good for Israel. No doubt that's what Joab would say. I might be brutal. I might leave a trail of blood everywhere I go, but the kingdom needs me. I get things done. I get results. Maybe that's how Joab would like to portray things, but the reality is this is rebellion from Joab. Joab always presents himself as a man of the kingdom, a man for the king. But Joab will not submit to the king. He will never allow his own authority to be challenged by the king. So it's all good when the king's will matches what Joab wants to do. But whenever the king's will clashes with Joab's will, then Joab will do what Joab wants to do. Because Joab knows He knows best. Joab's final authority is whatever his own heart tells him. And when you and I look at Joab, we are seeing how in God's kingdom, rebellion can dress up as loyalty. Joab fights for the kingdom. He'll kill for the kingdom. But he will not be controlled by the king. At the bottom of it all, Joab is his own king. And we can all begin to live that way. We can pour our lives out for the kingdom. We can be busy getting all sorts of things done for the kingdom. It is possible to be like that, busy for the kingdom, and yet be disregarding the king's will. 
living in defiance of his will. It can happen to church leaders. In the name of the kingdom, church leaders can end up trampling on whoever happens to get in their way. It can happen to those who do any kind of service. We do it all for Jesus. But if someone else gets recognized instead of us, if someone else gets the attention we think we deserve, some professing Christians could outdo Joab with the way they stick the knife in people. And what if Jesus' word conflicts with the way we want to live? What if Jesus says, walk this way, live this way, but our hearts are saying, I want to walk this way and live this way? Who wins the argument? Whose will prevails in our life? Whose word has final authority in our life? We might say Jesus is our king, but do we submit to the word of the king? Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If we profess to be members of God's kingdom, our main concern must be doing the will of the king. So Joab is off up the road. One of his men stays to drag Amasa's body off the road. And once the gory evidence is out of the way, the army is happy to follow Joab. They're content not to ask what happened to their new commander Amasa. They're content to step over the pool of blood in the middle of the road. Because, after all, you have to hand it to Joab. He gets things done. Never mind if he guts a few of his own people in the process. That seems to be the army's attitude. And unfortunately, it can be the attitude of the church as well sometimes. We can be tempted to overlook someone's ungodliness if they seem to be getting good results. But when the New Testament talks about leaders in the church, it focuses on godly character. That's what the church is to look for in its leaders. Gifting and ability are only to be considered after that qualification has been met. When we forget that, when we make charisma and drive all that we're concerned about, then we're asking for trouble. Back on Israel's highway, 
The army doesn't consider that. They follow Joab blindly after Sheba. And it turns out Sheba hasn't succeeded in gathering much support at all. His rebellion started with a trumpet, but it mostly fizzles out. In the end, it seems his own clan are the only ones willing to fight for him. His rebellion started at Gilgal. It ends about 85 miles north of there at a city called Abel Beth Makkah. Sheba holes up in the city. It's not clear if the people of the city welcomed him or not. If they did welcome him, they quickly come to regret it because Joab and his army arrive and they set about tearing the city down. Joab doesn't try any negotiating, first of all. Israel's law required him to do that, but he doesn't bother. He just gets straight to work, battering in the city wall. But then look down to the end of verse 15. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, Listen! Listen! Tell Joab to come here so that I can speak to him. He went towards her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, Long ago they used to say, Get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? We're told this woman is wise. And in the midst of this desperate situation, she shows true wisdom. As the people of Israel are shaping up to smash each other to pieces, look what the woman shouts. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance. This is the Lord's kingdom. Our job is to serve his kingdom, not smash it up. It's so obvious. But everybody else has forgotten it. This woman is the first to mention the Lord in this whole chapter. In the kingdom of God, this is what true wisdom does. Wisdom gets back to the obvious. When human ambitions and human hurts are all that people can see, true wisdom says, just stop. Whose kingdom is it? It's God's. So why are we all fighting as if it's our kingdom? It's so obvious. But it makes things clear if we'll listen to it. How many church feuds over the years would just have faded away if God's people had stopped in their tracks and gone back to the obvious? It's his kingdom. Wouldn't that stop most of that battering down and swallowing up that goes on in God's kingdom? As people fight for their own power or their own revenge, 
It's not our kingdom. It's his. We have to keep that obvious truth in our minds. And I realize maybe you feel like, well, I don't need that today. But you might need it tomorrow. When someone takes the limelight from you. Or someone doesn't seem friendly enough to you. This wise woman has called Joab out in front of everyone. And her wisdom catches on. Joab comes out with some obvious wisdom himself. Why are we smashing each other up? Sheba's the only one we need to deal with here. In the middle of verse 21. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. It's so obvious. If we go on like this, everything will be destroyed. But it doesn't have to be like that. There can be peace if one man is sacrificed. Sheba is the guilty one. Let the guilty one be punished and we'll all be saved. The people outside the city like that idea. The people inside the city like it too. And before long, Sheba's head comes winging over the wall. The kingdom is saved and everybody goes home. It was so obvious. Why would Israel fight when the death of just one man could make peace? And do you see the parallel? Why would we fight when one man has made peace with his death? Here in 2 Samuel, Sheba was the guilty man. He deserved to be punished. Our situation is different. We are the ones who deserve to be punished. Jesus is the guiltless one. But he has been punished to save us. Every one of us who is in the kingdom is in the kingdom by grace. Jesus died to bring us peace with God and peace with one another. Why would we struggle and fight with each other? Jesus died to bring us peace. It's so obvious. But we forget it so easily. Chapter 20 ends with a little summary of David's kingdom. That's a reminder as we read it, this kingdom in Israel is not the final kingdom. It might foreshadow the final kingdom in some ways, but it falls short in so many ways. This kingdom is not the place of perfect justice and righteousness. There are still rebels dressed up as loyal servants of the king. 
Not everyone is free in this kingdom. Verse 24 mentions forced labor. This is not the final kingdom of God, thank goodness. And today, we don't live in the final kingdom. Yes, we have so much more than David's kingdom had. We have God's Holy Spirit with us. But the good things we have are still only a down payment of what's to come. The last book of the Bible points us forward to a day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. It's so obvious. As God's people, we have so much today. But when you run into things that are not as they should be, when you experience hurt from people who call themselves God's people, when you see sinful masses in the church that don't seem to get cleaned up properly, when you and I are confronted with imperfections in the kingdom, then we are wise to remember the obvious. This is not the final kingdom. Again, the New Testament tells us, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has died for the many. He came first to pay our way into the kingdom. He's coming back to set up an eternal kingdom. So let's never give up on the kingdom. Let's remember whose kingdom it is. And let's look forward to the future of the kingdom. Our next song helps us respond to God's word. And it also prepares us for our time around this table. We'll sing, Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away. <laughs>